But this morning, our Bibles are open to James chapter 2. If you need a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the rack in front of you that you can find our text on page 950, 950, whatever Bible you have with you. We're in the second chapter in our continuing study of this wonderfully practical and highly inspirational letter uh, of James. It will come as no surprise to you um, that America is and has been largely a very religious nation. America is a, a, a religious people, historically and even in the present day. Now, that's changed over the years in terms of how people define religious expression. Um, and, you know, throughout the years, America has been identified as a Christian nation. I'm pretty sure it's not that. Um, by the way we act and the things that we embrace. But I do think that Americans largely still, even in the uh, year 2021, identify themselves as Christian people. George Barna, who is a, a Christian uh, pollster, came out and his organization with a <clears throat> survey several years ago that indicated that across the American spectrum, 62% of American people identify as having some kind of a relationship with Jesus Christ that's still very important to them in terms of the way they live. 62% confess to having some form of a relationship to G with Jesus Christ that affects and impacts the way that they live. What's interesting uh, to me about that, though, is that in the United States of America, church attendance has been declining for years. In a similar survey, Barna identified that only 38% of active Americans or of Americans have an active relationship with a church of any kind. Now, think about that for a minute. You've got six out of every 10 identifying as having some kind of a relationship with Jesus Christ but just a little bit over three out of every 10 having some form of a relationship with a particular local church. And what that means is, very simply, is there is a big and broad and wide disconnect with what we say we believe about Jesus Christ and how we openly live for Jesus Christ. And I think, obviously, you read the news headlines, you know that that's certainly the case. In Escambia County, I mean, we live in Pensacola, Florida, and we were in the deepest part of the deep south as you can probably go, because the rest of Florida is like a, a totally different, you know, entity on the planet. But certainly across the panhandle, panhandle of Florida, you know, burns bright red on the political map, and people where I live will fight you if you dare confess or contest, rather, that we are one nation under God, Right? And yet the reality is people are not living for Jesus Christ. They want to be known as one nation under God, but they don't want to live like they're one nation under God. In Escambia County, Florida, what's the population of our county? About 362,000 people in Escambia County. Of the 362,000 people in Escambia County, about 220,000 of those have no connection to a church whatsoever. Zero. 220 out of 312,000 people or thereabout in Escambia County have no connection to a church whatsoever.
However, there are reasons that churches around the country are sending mission teams to Pensacola, Florida. It's true by the score because we're an incredibly unchurched county right in the reddest part of the country in what could be described as the very buckle of the so-called Bible Belt. In our county, there are somewhere between 60 and 70 Southern Baptist churches in Escambia County. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest single religious presence in Escambia County, Florida. 60 to 70 churches. You know how many people will be in those churches today, along with you and me? About 11,000. In a county of 362,000 people, 11,000 or so of them will be attending our Southern Baptist churches today. And that 11,000 includes those who are attending, driving over from Baldwin County, Alabama, Santa Rosa, and Okaloosa County, Florida. So the 11,000 are not even all Escambia County residents. You say, well, what's the point of bombarding us with all this statistical data to show you that there's a big disconnect between what people say they believe about Jesus Christ and how they openly live for Jesus Christ. And you know, this is not a problem just with the 21st century church. Here's what blows my mind. That was the case in like the very first church, the one pastored by Brother Jimmy, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who we know is the Apostle James. And you know how I know that? Because it's that disconnect between what we profess to believe about Jesus and how we live for Jesus that forms the basis of our text this morning from James chapter 2. Y'all ready to read it this morning? Would you say amen? Now I'm going to invite those of you that are capable of to stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word of God. The words will be on the screen, so if you'd like to read it out loud together with me, feel free to chime in. Ready? Together. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Father, today we're grateful for the eternal word of God, and I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would take these words and do his bidding today among the people of God, among those who are listening today. Holy Spirit, you're the master teacher. My prayer is that you would simply get me out of the way, as the old preachers used to say, hide me behind the cross, so that all that people can see is what you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and rightly respond to it in a way that transforms their lives, all for the glory of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, 
Amen and amen. Thank you, church family. You all may be seated. What a great passage of scripture. In fact, you know, this is one of those passages of scripture that kind of James is known for, right? Uh, it's about saving faith. I could have entitled this message other than saving faith. I could have entitled it living faith, genuine faith, authentic faith, because that's really what James is talking about here. And it's what we want to talk about as well. This is a passage that raises the question. It's not always comfortable to ask, but one that has to be raised, particularly in an age like we live in, which is an age of easy believism. And the question is this, are you sure that you're saved? Are you sure that you've been, to use Jesus' term, born again? And if you were to answer yes to that question, if so, how do you know? What's the evidence? It's like, again, the old preacher used to say, if you were dragged into an American court of law and charged with being a sold-out follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's what James is getting at here. He's talking about legitimate, saving faith, how to know that you've truly been born again, and it's not just something that you like to talk about in order to present yourself as a religious person. He gives us three things about saving living faith that helps us to arrive at a definite conclusion. The first is simply this, namely that saving faith is more than mere verbal confession. It's not just mere verbal confession. Now, having said that, let me say that authentic saving faith must be confessional. It's something that you profess. It's something that you give a testimony about. You need to have something to say about what you believe concerning Jesus Christ. But having said that, let me say this. Not everybody that says they have a confession about Jesus actually has a confession about Jesus. Most people in America testify that they're going to heaven. 85% of Americans think they're going to heaven when they die. But biblically, there's no way that can be justified. So we know not everybody's talking about going to heaven is actually going to go to heaven. And that's because what they possess is merely a verbal confession and nothing more. The Bible says, and you need to have a verbal confession because the scripture says that. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. That's true. But that being true, James comes into the picture here in chapter 2 and says, while that is absolutely true, verbal faith by itself does not prove one has been born again. He reminds the church that saving faith is always a visible faith. It's something that others can see in you, actually happening, actually proving itself, actually, to use the biblical language, producing fruit that honors and glorifies Christ. So while faith might begin with nothing more than a verbal confession of what you believe about Jesus, it always follows when it's genuine with an outward observable action. It proves itself 
by what it does. Here in verse 14, James asks a couple of rhetorical questions in order to drive home that point. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, circle the word says in your notes, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he asks an important question. Can that faith save him? You can't see it in your English copy of the Bible there, but in the Greek New Testament, that last sentence contains what's called a negative particle which means that the implied answer to the question is what? No, that's right. That kind of faith can't save him, can it? And of course, when we phrase it that way, we know that there's an implied answer, which is certainly not. And that's what James is driving home here. He doesn't believe that kind of faith, a faith that is word-based only, but doesn't prove itself by what it does, is legitimate saving faith. He asked the question, what good is faith unaccompanied by works? What profit is there in it? And of course, the answer is none at all, because saving faith always results in action of some kind. It's confessed through the lips, absolutely, but it's witnessed in the hands and in the feet of the one who says they have it. And this is just another way of saying a faith that is merely verbal is not saving faith. Verbal faith does not save. Verbal faith does not serve, James says here. And he gives a concrete illustration of what he's talking about in verse 15 that returns back to the question in the unit that we just talked about over the last two Sundays about how they treated poor people that came into the church. And the unit before that was about how they treated widows and how they treated orphans. So James is like really concerned about how the church is treating, or better yet, how they're mistreating those who are on the margins in society. And basically what he's communicating there is that that doesn't look like saving faith to me. A church that has received the mercy of the Lord and doesn't demonstrate it actively to others, could it be the James saying judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy is casting doubt on the authentic salvation of many of them that are gathering together with that first century church in their Lord's Day assemblies. I think it can, and I believe it does. What profit is there in it? None at all. Because there's no demonstrable action, a genuine faith, is a serving faith. Look at verse 15 of our text. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, insert, slap on the back, without giving them the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So here's the picture of again a poor person within the confines of the local church. James is not talking about a homeless person here. He's not talking about a person outside the church because he calls them a brother or sister. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. So they're hungry, and to use the Greek word that James himself uses, they're naked. The ESV cleans it up a little bit, says poorly clothed. They're naked. Now where I come from, he's not talking about buck naked, you know what I mean? But what they're wearing in terms of clothing 
is at the far extremes of a loose definition of what we would call clothing. It's rags. They're dressed in tatters. And on a cool night like we had last night, wouldn't do them much good. Couldn't keep them warm in the least. So they're hungry, they're cold, they're practically naked. And he asked the question, what good is that? What good is it to pat them on the back and say, go, God be with you. Be warmed and and be filled. You can trust the Lord to provide. And you know what God says to that? Absolutely, they can trust the Lord to provide. But here's the deal. I put the money in your bank account for you to provide for them. And you're going to pat them on the back and send them away and just tell them to trust the Lord as if Thanksgiving dinner and a box of clothing from Macy's department store is just going to fall out of the sky and land right in front of them on the street corner? No, I've blessed you for a purpose, God says, to actively demonstrate that your life has been transformed. The life is not all about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Jesus gave his life for you. You're to be willing to lay down your life for the brothers. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, John says. And James would say, you know what? We'll get to laying down the life thing later. How about just giving them a hot meal and something decent to wear? When I've blessed you the way you've been blessed. How often have believers simply encouraged a needy person by just saying, man, goodbye and good luck, basically. Story is told of an English preacher who happened to cross one of his members back several generations ago. He's walking down a one-lane street there in the Midlands of England. And he came across one of his parishioners on one of those one-lane highways, one-lane roadways. And his parishioner was not a wealthy man. He was a poor man, tenant farmer. And his horse was laying off on the side of the road, had just dropped dead. And the man, the parishioner, was despondent. He didn't know how he was going to replace the horse. He knew he couldn't work without the horse. He couldn't do his farming without the horse. Couldn't get his goods to market without the horse. Horses cost money. He didn't know what he was going to do. The crowd had gathered there by the time the minister got there. And everybody was, you know, embracing the guy and patting him on the back and telling him everything was going to be all right. And they were telling him how sorry they were. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. And the minister was hearing all these people expressing condolences that the man had lost his one and only means of livelihood. And he reached down into his pocket and he pulled out a crinkled up five pound note. He took his hat off and he dropped the five pound note in his hat and he looked at the man and he said, I want you to know that I'm sorry too. And I'm sorry, five pounds worth. And then he turned to the guy that had been expressing condolences to the man right next to him and he handed him his hat and said, how sorry are you? And this is what James's point is here. It's one thing to say, oh, the Lord be with you and the Lord bless and keep you. But real faith demonstrates its gratitude by willingly giving when we're able to, when someone has need. I mentioned last Sunday, 1 John 3, 
17 and 18, and I think it bears repeating today because it fits very well here. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. And how often we do that? How often we open up our mouth but close off our heart? But the Bible says whoever does that, the question is raised, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in what? In deed and in truth. Y'all tracking with me so far? Say amen. Verbal faith does not save. Verbal faith alone does not serve. Verbal faith alone does not survive. It's one of the most recognizable passages in the entire book of James. Some say it even serves as a summation for the entire book of James. It's verse 17. Say it out loud together with me as they put it up on the screen. James 2.17, together. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. King James Bible says faith without works is dead. Very effective summary. It's lifeless. It's useless. It exists in name only. It's inwardly dead, and because it's inwardly dead, it's outwardly inactive. Here's what Jesus said about the matter in Matthew 17, or Matthew 7, rather, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which James, the half-brother of the Lord, was very familiar with Jesus' teaching, especially his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, because it pops up all over the letter of James. But here's what Jesus said about the matter, Matthew 7, 17. Every healthy tree bears what? Good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit or no fruit at all, right? So you have a good tree and a bad tree, and that's representative of the genuinely saved and those who are not saved at all. One produces good fruit, one produces bad fruit or no fruit. For every healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. Now that's a picture of the final judgment. That's hell. So can I just say this morning, you don't want to be a bad tree producing bad or no fruit because the outcome is not positive. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their what? By their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, circle the word says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who what? Does, circle the word does. The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That's how faith is proven to be saving faith. It is a faith that says, but it's also a faith that does. Now, let me be very clear because I do think it's important to be clear. I'm not saying this morning that those good works and the production of that good fruit is what saves a person. Everybody heard me say amen. You can't be saved by those good works. In fact, you can't even produce them in a way that honors and glorifies God unless you are genuinely saved. Now, if we could be saved by producing good works, there's no need for the cross of Christ. No, no need for Jesus to die. You just do good things and hope God checks off enough of those things on the list to let you in when it comes time for you to die. 
That's not the gospel, though, because we've made very clear through the years that you're just not that good, and neither am I. You can't measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. Your very best, the Bible says, is filthiness in the presence of God. Your best is dirty rags in the presence of a holy God. No, we need Jesus to be saved. We need what he did. We need his work on the cross, his work through the empty tomb. That's what saves a person, by faith in the work of Christ. However, what James is accentuating here is a counter to this easy believism that's rampant in our country and in our world today that just talks about what great faith people have and never does anything to prove the reality of it. He's saying, no, if you've got living, authentic faith, if it's genuine faith that saved you, it'll be a faith that transforms you. And you'll no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. That's what James is teaching here. I am saved by grace through faith plus nothing. But there are times when you can do a lip service faith. I mean, parroting a prayer never saved anybody. Walking an aisle never saved anybody. Going to a Discover class and filling out a card and joining a church never saved anybody. Dressing well for the Lord's Day never saved anybody. Serving in a ministry never saved anybody. You're only saved by faith. However, where that faith is genuine, you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And where it's genuine, you'll connect with the church on the Lord's Day. And where it's genuine, you'll find a ministry and you'll serve in it, not as a means to make yourself look good, but as a means to glorify and honor the Christ who's given everything for your eternal destiny. Genuine faith proves itself by being a working faith. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. And where there is genuine saving faith, there'll always be the fruit of good works that bring honor and glory to the Lord. Martin Luther said, it's impossible to separate faith from works as impossible to separate heat and light from fire. And that's a good word. Y'all still with me? Say amen. amen. Saving faith is more than verbal confession. But another thing James teaches is that saving faith is more than personal interpretation. I mean, what James does here in verse 18 is he injects an imaginary theological liberal that he kind of begins to debate in order to drive home the point. And this imaginary objector who is arguing as a theological liberal is one of those kinds of people that think everybody's okay regardless of what their faith looks like or regardless of what they believe. You know, I'm okay, you're okay, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, but we're all headed in the same direction, right? We're all going to end up in the same place because God is a God of love. And this is what James is getting at in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. This is like someone today saying, well, you have your truth and then I have my truth. As if truth is not objective. No, it's either truth or it's a lie. 
There is no your truth and my truth. But that's what people want to believe today. And this is what this guy is arguing here in verse 18. You got your opinion about faith and I have my opinion about faith. But the bottom line, listen, here's the thing. I like to be busy and I like to be active. I don't care about right belief and all this theological mumbo jumbo. I just like to do good things, make people feel better. And then another person will argue, well, you know what? I, I, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't like to be out there and rubbing shoulders with people. But I like to argue theological truth. I like to dig deep into the books and I like to know what people have said throughout history and I like to build great systematic theologies and debate about them. You're more academic, I'm more practical, I'm more practical, you're more academic. But really, we're all good with God. That's what this guy is arguing that James is just kind of making up here. But he's bringing this imaginary arguer into the picture because James doesn't see it that way at all. He knows how people think. He says in verse 18, somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. But then James says, show me your faith apart from your works. If you say you have faith, prove it. But if you don't have works, here's James's point. How can you prove it? If you're not doing anything, and his point is what? You can't. It's impossible. How can you show me your faith if you don't have any good works to back, them, to back it up? And so you gotta like prove it by what you do. Now he doesn't get very specific here, does he? He kind of leaves it open for interpretation in terms of what those works are. But I mean, there's some basic things here in the book of James that he's already talked about. I mean, he's already said, for example, faith uh, without works is dead, therefore be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. So one way that you show the reality of your faith is through how you handle the word of God. I mean, that's just very basic. It's counterintuitive to say, oh yeah, I've got saving faith, but I never pick up a Bible. I have no interest in knowing what God has said all throughout redemptive history. He talks about engaging widows, James does, and engaging the orphan and engaging the poor and being non-discriminatory, showing Christian hospitality. Those are good works. How well are we doing in those areas? Connecting with the local church. I mean, that's just rudimentary. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Giving generously, learning to be a giver is the way you demonstrate the reality of your faith. Identifying spiritual gifts and using those spiritual gifts in a ministry of some kind is one of the ways that you demonstrate the reality of your faith. There's all kinds of things that we could mention here. None of that stuff will save you by doing it, but when it's not there and you claim to have a saving faith, but never darken the door of the church, never give a dime to gospel causes, never pick up a Bible except maybe to bring it with you as a token on Sundays, never engage a lost person with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even when you know the person deeply, then James would say, 
the absence of those kinds of things is very telling because it reveals a fruitlessness that Jesus said belongs to a bad tree. Now, the, the, the person who can't demonstrate the authenticity of their faith by what they do with it is like a bird that tries to fly with one wing. I mean, a bird can't fly with one wing. Now, somebody's going to write me an email and say, oh, yeah, there's this Argentinian emu that actually, you know what I mean? Don't write me any emails. God made birds to fly with two wings. And when one of them is hindered or broken, all a bird does is flap around and make a lot of noise. But it cannot do what God intended it to do, namely soar in the highest heavens. Now, it takes both wings to soar. The wing of faith, the wing of works, working in tandem, one demonstrating the authenticity of the other. Does that make sense? Saving faith is more than verbal confession. Saving faith is more than personal interpretation. And then finally, James says, saving faith is more than intellectual understanding. And man, we believe in intellectual growth in theology for all of God's children. We do everything we know how to do. We try to preach through the word of God systematically to keep it in its proper context. We, we have every kind of group imaginable that teaches every kind of subject under the sun. We, 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 we do our very best that people might grow spiritually in their mind because that's part of what disciples do. But James says, saving faith is more than just growing your mind. It's kind of a capstone of James's argument here. It's more than just believing the right theological system. Saving faith is more than just believing the right set of biblical facts. Because if all it took to be saved was simply believing the right set of biblical facts or having the right theological system, here's the thing. Even the devil would be a born-again Christian. Because the devil has a very orthodox understanding of the doctrine of God. And that's why James says what he does here. Verse 19 you believe that God is one. That's a reference to the highest and most holy scripture that a Jewish person would believe. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one Lord. James says, you believe that, you do well. That's a good thing. You should believe that. But here's the thing. He says, even the demons what? Believe and shudder. Which means that apparently there are some demons that are closer to God than many human beings are. Hey, hey, hey. Because as I read the word of God, there doesn't appear to be the first atheist demon, not one. Have y'all ever noticed when you read the gospel that whenever Jesus encounters somebody who's filled with a demon, that the demon always knows exactly who Jesus is. You ever notice that? Man, I think about that story 
in Mark chapter six of Jesus encountering the legion, the man that was possessed by the legion of demon. I mean, he was full of the devil. And Jesus stepped off the boat there in Gadara and it wasn't like Jesus had to go up to the guy and extend his hand and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus Ben Joseph from Galilee of the city of Nazareth. Nice to meet you. He didn't have to introduce himself. He didn't even open his mouth. And the man possessed by the legion of demons is coming up to Jesus, falling down in front of him and says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Which sounds like a pretty good identifying marker of who Jesus was. Nobody had to tell him that. Because James reminds us, even the demons believe. They're quite orthodox in their theology. They don't have a saving faith, but they have an intellectual faith. Hadn't done a thing for them, except make them shudder with fright in the presence of a holy God. But they're closer to God than a lot of human beings are. Who would say, ah, oh, no, there is no God. Or to make a false claim about their relationship with God. No, saving faith is more than intellectual understanding. Even though intellectual understanding from the scriptures is a good and a necessary thing. But here's the point. You can believe all the right things about God from the Bible and still be as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. Because those facts haven't made the necessary traveling distance over 18 inches from the head to the heart. And saving faith is never just a matter of the mind. It begins with the mind, but it has to travel to the heart. This is why the Bible says in Proverbs 3 and 5, trust in the Lord with all your... The Bible doesn't say trust in the Lord with all your head. It says trust in the Lord with all your... Heart. And here's the thing, when you do that, when you trust in the Lord with your heart, that's transformational. That means every part about your life has had a radical shift take place. Your character changes, your conduct changes, not all at once. It's a lifetime of growth. Somebody say amen. Thank God he is not finished with me yet. No, you add to your faith in incremental steps, the Bible says. It's a lifetime journey. But here's what James is saying. If it's legitimate saving faith, it'll change your life. It begins with right belief, but it's proven by a changed life. And where there is no change of life, where there is no change in desire, there is no possession of eternal life. As hard as it may be for some of you to believe, saving faith is like a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. I bought my wife about three Christmases ago a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. I mean, the real thing. I don't know, ten dollars to $12,000, something like that is what I paid for them. Listen, it was worth every penny of it because when I'm driving her down the road and she's sitting over there in those Ray-Bans, she is the coolest chick on the planet, man. I'm telling you, she's looking good. 
And she's had those things, man, every morning, every evening, on, off, on, off. You go and look at those things today, they look like they just came right out of the box, man. She'd take good care of them. I, too, had a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. I bought them on the streets of Tegucigalpa, Honduras, from a vendor who had a sign there that said, genuine fake Ray-Bans. <laughs> Paid $3 for them, three American dollars. Man, they were aviator style. I looked like Tom Cruise in Top Gun. I mean, I was proud of those things. And I put those things on instantly as I walked the streets of Tegucigalpa that day. I was a boss. And I mean, warm through the week and Thing about those Ray-Bans, I mean, they had the imprint. They even came with a leather case that had the Ray-Ban logo on the outside of the snap cover. When I got on the plane several days later, I went to walk into the airport to go through security to get on that plane, and I had those Ray-Bans off coming in from the parking lot, and when I took those Ray-Bans off, the left earpiece stayed stuck to the side of my head. And I thought, what just happened? So I carefully put the piece back in there and stuck it in the, the leather case. Thought I could fix that. And when I got home, I did a little screwing, did a little soldering. Sure enough, got the thing working again. Only about four days later to be driving down the road, stopped at a store and to get out of the car, took my Ray-Bans off, set them on the console and the right lens just popped right out. And before you knew it, that whole thing had just like disintegrated in less than a month. Now, man, it looked the part. It looked just like the real deal. Had the same case, had the same imprint, had the same swag. But it was different from my wife's Ray-Bans. And you know what the difference was? functionality. One of them functioned and by its consistent function proved itself to be the real thing. One was fake and it didn't last long at all. And such is the moral of the story of what could be the most recognizable section in the entire letter of James. I ask the question again, are you sure that yours is a saving faith? If so, how do you know? Jesus would say, by their fruits, you'll know them. But his brother shoot just as straight. Faith without works is dead. Are you sure you've been born again? This is God's word and all God's people said. Amen.